Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, g'day. Good to be with you for a second week. In the absence of Alan Jones, my name is Jason Morrison. Alan's on a break. He'll be back with you in uh, two weeks from now with some good stories to tell you about what he's been up to. So it's a pleasure to be with you and thank you for your support and your company on this program. Every now and then we see a headline that tells us that we have some really big issues in this country, issues that just go on and never really get talked about. Nothing ever really gets resolved. Tucked away in the weekend newspapers was a little but staggering headline story. I think it went for four paragraphs. Australian schools, the most disorderly in the world. And the story went a bit like this. The OECD surveyed behavioural standards of 15-year-olds all around the world, and we're we're talking year nine, year 10 kids, in 45 civilised countries, and compared the outcome to the behaviour of Australian kids. Now, here's the raw data. They asked them questions about noise in the classroom, disruption, violence, the rate of learning, a whole stack of things. And Australia ended up there, 37th out of 45. Or in school terms, we scored 18%. Look at that. Look who's above us. I mean, even the United States is above us, better behave, the Russian Federation is above us. So if I can put it crudely, uh, a classroom in the Bronx, better behave than a classroom in the equivalent in Australia. Another story in the paper. Almost half the teachers in the country are considering leaving the job in the next year. The Telegraph had it today in a headline. Across the state, 10,000 lessons go ahead each day without an appropriately qualified teacher up the front of the class. And why is that? Well, because staff turnover, staff retention, teachers leaving the profession has never been greater. Teachers are at breaking point and the struggle is not just the kids' behaviour, it's the parents' as well. So they do this annual rolling survey of principals and they ask them about the levels of disrespect and aggression in their schools, and they keep it anonymous, and they conclude it's getting worse. This is not necessarily news, by the way, because anyone who's had anything to do with schools knows it. So I ask the question, what's being done? The problem is there, we know the problem exists, but what's the resolution? Well, from what we can tell, there's nothing going on. We're throwing more money at teachers, And we're saying, you know, we're paying you well now, we're rewarding you. It's almost like danger money now. But that's a short-term solution. You will never keep great people in a profession if it is a straight-out hideous environment to work in. And never in our times has the concept of discipline been more ignored. The solution seems to be just keep making excuses. It's the internet. It's social media. It's video games. It's ailments, it's ADHD, it's they're not taking their medication. One thing people don't talk about is kids coming from wild, lawless, uncontrolled households, where every moment they're not at school, it's bloody madness in their life. They do, they say, 
what they like. They behave in a fashion that's just abhorrent. They talk back. Violence is met with more violence. They respond with violence. And let's not even go through households where drug, alcohol, booze and everything like that are all in the equation as well. We have a problem. And we all see it from time to time, scumbag parents. So what hope does the school have when the teacher tries to control a child that is left to do what they want at home? And the technical phrase is there's a crisis of adult authority. There's often none. And then there's the parent that won't accept that their child has done wrong. So the teacher rouses on the child and mum and dad are straight on the phone to the headmaster complaining about what's going on. They want action against the teacher. Or worse still, and I have seen it happen, they go to the media and they want to blow the teacher up online on social media or worse, on television. And speaking of television, take this case. This is a teacher in the New South Wales Hunter Valley. Now, you may have seen this before. This is a 62-year-old teacher by the name of Michael Cable. He was working as a casual at a high school, filling holes, ironically, in the roster of what clearly is the worst class in the school. And the poor bloke is taunted. He has things thrown at him, desks tossed in his direction. These are 14 and 15-year-olds pushing and shoving the teacher. The language, we can't turn it up. It's unbelievable. So Mr Cable loses his stuff and whacks one of them. Look at this. You can see, look, look at the defiance that's going on. So he is, as a result of this video, there, there's, that's what he did, right? He grabbed him and pushed him. Would have done more probably if it was me. Michael Cable was criminally charged because of this video. He was sacked. And what about the kids? Well, you'll notice that we've blurred their faces because that's the law. The law says we can't even show you them. What were they charged with? Nothing. What happened to them? I'm going to hazard a guess and say that many of them are still at that school. Or if they're not, they're transferred to another school and they are seen as victims of this ghoulish, horrible teacher. They're little shits. And no one will ever know who threw the desk at the teacher. No one will ever know who attacked him. No one will ever know who abused him. All right, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because yesterday there was a great moment, a great moment. There's Mr Cable outside court. He went to the Court of Appeal, no less, to confront the system on the punishment it handed out to him when he pled guilty to assault, because he said, yeah, I did assault him, but I had explanation for it. I was taunted. He had a hell of a fight, an expensive fight that went on. He had to hire lawyers. You can see them there with him. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of skin, and it took his career. This man went to court and managed to convince with his legal team a judge to find him to be the subject of extreme provocation and essentially wipe away the conviction. Judge Peter McGrath in the Newcastle District Court, good for you. He acknowledged that now 63-year-old teacher had a career as a caring, dedicated man, an integral part of the community with a history of going above and beyond. And now the poor bloke is ruined and the kids are laughing at him.
Do you think you'll head back to teaching? Uh, it's an option, I think, so that's good. What's next for you? Uh, I don't know, just go and take it all in and I'm not quite sure. <laughs> We're not quite sure either. Poor bloke. Hope he gets a job back. But it doesn't give you much hope. There's often this phrase, you couldn't pay me enough to be a school teacher. I see that, I agree. I know Alan, who was a teacher earlier in his life, talks about the need to get real with actual discipline. What would fix a class full of kids like that? What would do that to change them in that Hunter Valley classroom? A bit of fear might. I dare say Mr K will put a bit of that into them. But they got away with it. And just for a second, forget giving them the cane. That'll never happen. Teachers get reamed for daring to raise their voice these days. Their careers are ruined with petty parental complaints. It's the old phrase, we reap what we sow. And by the way, if anyone knows Mr Cable, could you please pass on our regards and send him this video and let him know there are a lot of people who feel very sorry for him and are very much on his side. What happened to him shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have been before the court and those kids should have been held accountable. They weren't and he was and it's damaged him badly. If you're watching this, good on you and thank you for what you do. Anthony Albanese just does not get it. Now Airbus Albo is doing what he does when the going gets tough. He's left the country again, humiliated by his appalling judgment in trying to defy Australia by this racial line in the referendum. And he avoids the issue. He's done it already for a week out of respect for Aboriginal Australians, who by the way, it appears probably largely voted against it as well. And you see, just as we start to get a hint about how nasty some of the people actually were behind the Yes campaign, the Prime Minister is nowhere to be seen calling them. We had the open letter sent around the country yesterday where we essentially had no voters pilloried by the so-called leaders of the Aboriginal movement. And the Prime Minister response, nil, leaves it to subordinates to handle because he's off for the bigger game. The Prime Minister is off to Washington for the Biden circus. I believe a very unnecessary state dinner to remind the world that we're all the way with America, like there was ever doubt about it. And meanwhile, back in Australia, the real issues are at boiling point and they're getting ignored. We had a staggering story yesterday, a remarkable charity, the Food Bank, that runs all around the country to help people who are destitute to feed them. They say 3.7 million people in this country have struggled this year to put food on the table. A real and genuine crisis on the home front. People can't afford to eat. Where's Albo? There he is. Washington. Wasting time and money talking to a president who doesn't even know what day it is. And yesterday, in the Financial Review, no less, there is this graphic, a story that is a survey of Australians just in case you don't think you know what Australians are up to right now, what they think are the Prime Minister's priorities and what they should be right now. Right up the top, park your eyes there, cost of living, 81%. That's everybody thinks that's an issue. What's he doing? None of that. Let's go down a bit. Health, hospital, ageing, housing. Big priority. Interest rates, of course, 
Power prices. Oh. Actually, I'm actually glad he does nothing about power prices because everything he touches just goes up in price. You've got to get to number 10 on the list before you get anywhere near national security, what he's apparently doing over there with Biden. And absolutely nobody cares what he's been waffling on about all year. The voice comes back at 11%. Now, please, please, don't misread this. I don't think that our connection with America doesn't matter for a section. We have a deep affection for that nation. We are cactus without them. But relations between Australia and the US are not at risk. They are the best I've seen them since John Howard was Prime Minister. Our nations are bonded in blood from the tens of thousand American boys who died along our men and women who fought to save this place from the Japanese. We will forever be locked with America. But when your people are hurting at home, and there are too many here hurting, why not attention on pressing issues? And it is simply this, that Anthony Albanese's judgment, again, is not eye on the ball. He's anywhere but. In the last week, just about every home in the country, for example, got a letter from their telephone or their internet provider. The NBN is putting up prices. And if you haven't got it, it's on its way to you. Another price rise. Now, okay, who's the NBN? Well, the NBN's the government. The federal government owns it. The federal government is putting up the price of your another household utility. You can't watch me without the NBN. You need it. Prices are up for almost every household plan. Why? Well, because they can. Now, why do I bring this up? Is it the Prime Minister's fault the price of the NBN's going? Of course not, of course not. But if the government's eye was on the ball, on the real issues that 81% of us want looked after right now, the price of living, if he was eye on the ball, he wouldn't let it happen. It wouldn't slip through. But it is like they're on annual leave. They have no idea how tough the times are. And I guess when you live your life on a private plane and you're surrounded by people that earn two and three and four hundred thousand dollars a year and life's pretty cosy in Canberra, you get lazy, you get easily distracted, you get grossly out of touch. And frankly, it's any wonder that the polls are predicting that he is a goner. Well, the Channel 7 Spotlight program recently showed the shocking extent of gender transitioning in this country, of kids. The evidence has become irrefutable that there are gender clinics doing more than just helping people who come to them. They're kind of actively promoting the transgender lifestyle. Now, you know, each to their own if you're an adult, but these surgeries are being performed on children. And it's grotesque. I mean, we could not even describe what goes on but it is going on. Now, this is a study from the University of California, San Francisco, showing a disturbing number of underage girls as young as 12 years old that have been subjected to life-altering changes to their bodies. The public is, I think, fed up with seeing their activism in the name of apparently helping these kids who I feel are being abused. Abused by doctors who have found some way, some profit incentive to see the activism played out. And then when it is to say, you can't talk about this because of the risk of suicide. 
It's, it's the worst game. They want this shut down and not talked about, and they want it to go on. Sweden and Denmark have now completely banned child gender transitions. And the high-profile clinic in the UK has been shut down after legal action from so-called detransitioners. And the number of children in Australia seeing these clinics has increased tenfold since 2014. Think about this number. Back then, 10 years ago, 211 to 2067. How? Why? And, and why is nothing being done about this? And why is it not being talked about? It's always said, oh, this is such a small issue. You know, why do you people want to talk about this? It's children. It's children. And so few people in the Australian Parliament have the courage to stand up because the moment you do, and we'll cop it too, I'll tell you, we'll cop it. The moment you do, there's an avalanche that wants to shut you down and shut down the decision and call your names and whatever else. I actually think this fellow has courage to talk about it and it's bizarre that you need it. Senator Alex Antic, the Liberal Senator from South Australia, who I know you know is a straight shooter on these things, and he has a proposal before the Parliament, essentially a prohibition bill. And along with other senators, conservative senators, he wants something done so this does not just sort of keep on happening. He's with us in our Canberra studio. Senator Antic, good day. How are you? Oh, I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for that intro. Bizarre that we even have to be talking about this. Look, it is a bit, and those numbers you um, you spoke of uh, are uh, pretty telling as well. Um, there's also a five-fold increase in kids just getting puberty blocker drugs, and I say just. I mean, that, that's pretty significant as well. That has a potentially has um, permanent ramifications as well. So this is spread out all over the country. It's uh, variable between state, um, but kids are... Um, one way or another, um, being, I guess, uh, you know, taken through this process in circumstances where it's, you know, my personal view, I know the views of, of a lot of Australians that, that really it should just be left uh, and treated as a, as, a, as a sort of a symptom uh, of childhood and, you know, in the, in the psychological sense uh, as well, rather than having this drastic intervention, which we are now seeing uh, in Australia and through other parts of the world, having uh, this, these consequences of detransitioners coming forward. And that's, of course, as you said, quite prevalent in the United Kingdom with the, the Tavistock Clinic issue, but also we're seeing it here now. There was a show on Channel 7 Spotlight uh, a month or so ago, which was pretty harrowing viewing, which talked about these sorts of issues and the regret some of these kids have um, having gone down this path, having, having been allowed to go down this path. So my view is uh, it's time for federal parliament to step in and to put a moratorium on these procedures, surgeries and drugs uh, until kids are 18 at the very least and, and then, you know, from there things look a bit different. We all know what that's like getting through your uh, your early teens into your uh, into your early adulthood. Things change very, very rapidly and I, I just think it's the prudent course of action. See, I, I, I look at it in a very simple way. Uh, this is the parliament doing what its job should be to protect the kids uh, because if society won't, then the parliament has an obligation to step in and ensure that it happens. I think that is your motivation. And, and you know, this conversation now, I can see it. It'll be sliced up, taken out of context. There'll be things that will be done to what we are talking about right now to try to portray both of us as people who have a problem with people who do this in their lives. I don't. Do it. If it's what your choice is, once you're an adult, do it. But you're a kid, 
your weight? Yeah, spot on. And I mean, of course, there are so many examples of, of ways in which the government does put those, you know, restrictions on kids. Of course, you can't drink until you're 18. You can't vote until you're 18. You can't smoke. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a range of things that, that, that we say, look, you need to wait until you're an adult to do. And, you know, it seems to me to be extraordinary that this is one of those things that, that can, in certain circumstances, be allowable. It, I just don't think it should be allowable ever, in my own personal view. And, uh, and you know, it, there is a time for Parliament to step in and protect kids, and I, and I say this is it. This bill would do it. Um, it's in its fairly early stages. It was introduced about this time last week into the Parliament, and uh, it was uh, co-sponsored by Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland National Party, Senator Ralph Babbitt from the UAP in Victoria, and Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation in Queensland. So not only is it a, a multi-party uh, push, but it's also a, a push from all over the country. I think we're all on the same page on this one. I'm curious about it. What's the reaction on the other side? I mean, what, what does the government say about this? Put, put aside the Greens. We know what the Greens say. We actually don't care what the Greens say. But, but what does the government say yeah. about it? Well, look, I haven't had, a, I haven't had a, an opportunity to come to a formal position yet. I, I suspect that, uh, you know, they'll look at it with pretty, pretty dim, uh, you know, dim look, view of it. But um, we want to get it to the floor of the Senate so there can be a vote. We want to get it to, uh, hopefully, to a uh, committee hearing as well so we can get the evidence of some of these people, some of the people that are involved at the coalface, because I, I just don't think we are talking about this enough. And, you know, the fact that uh, that, that show was on Channel 7 uh, was, a, it was a huge surprise and a, and a really good thing, I think, to raise awareness about the plight of some of these these kids, these detransitioners who have all these regrets. Yeah, well, I mean, I have a little insight. I, I worked at Channel 7 uh, while the show was being put together and I have a little insight to the enormous pressure that went on to try to stop this going there. Such is the power. And, yeah. you know, again, we keep hearing over and over, this is such a small group of people, why are you so obsessed with it? I don't even think this is an obsession. But I tell you what is an obsession is shutting down discussion about this. Yeah. Well, look, that's right. And I, I, look, I expect that that will probably be the case, but that doesn't that doesn't mean we don't try. And of course, we, we have to do what's right. I think this is the right call. I think this is the sensible and safe call. And I think, you know, if there were to be protections like this in Parliament, then I think that would ultimately be a good thing for kids. And, you know, as you say, people want to do that once they're an adult. Well, you know, that's their business and uh, no one wants to stand in the way of that. But, you know, we've got to protect the kids. We've, we've got to make sure that there are, there are guardrails around them until they are at a point where they can make decisions for themselves. Yeah, good on you for standing on this one. Um, can I just move to something else? And we're, we're talking about, you know, freedom of discussion here. There's a bit of legislation that's sitting in the Parliament's in-tray that no one again wants to talk about, but this is also damn powerful, this one. This is government-sponsored, the misinformation bill, you know, the internet censorship yeah. bill, uh, essentially something that gives a bureaucracy the power to decide what shouldn't be seen by people. And, and, and funnily enough, it's almost, it's a, little, a bit like we're ahead of ourselves here. It's almost like what we're talking about could become the sort of thing that they would say, this is unacceptable to be spoken of, so just stop discussion about it. This is really dangerous stuff. What are you hearing about it? Where is it at? Yeah, well, look, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible bill. It was released as a, what they call an exposure draft, which is really the minister throwing it out for comment to sort of pressure test it in many ways. And I'm told they had 23,000 submissions, I would suspect most of which were not positive yeah, and right. are only going to release 2,500 of them. Now, I, I'm actually really encouraged by the amount of pushback there's been on this bill because I've been watching this space for a long period of time. And I initially was a bit 
concerned that people may not see the the importance and the gravity of what was being suggested here, which is exactly as you say. What, what would happen here uh, is that there would be basically extra powers given to ACMA, the media authority, to decide what was and was not mis- or disinformation, as it's called. And that ultimately would be what the government says. I mean, you know, you take the example of COVID, the, the COVID era, for example, um, misinformation would have been anything really that, that flew against the advice of the Department of Health. And we saw that. We saw through mm. that period that the Department of Health and Home Affairs teaming up with social media, teaming up with uh, these foreign nationals doing this work on on reporting these posts and actually pulling down things that were quite true at the time well that would be the future under this bill except that there may well be criminal sanctions as well and fines that go along with it so the chilling effect on uh, you know shows like this really uh, social media the smaller broadcasters would be very real where um, big traditional news outlets like uh, you know the, the major broadcasters would be exempt and so would government so really what you'd get is basically the news of yesteryear where it was just whatever the mainstream media and the government told you. And that, that sounds like a ministry of truth to me. Or, or if I can put it in a fashion that's very relatable, you get the ABC is what you get. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sorry uh, that we exist because of them, despite them. Um, that's right. So, okay, you... you, you you, you sense that there's huge opposition to it. I sense certainly before the yes-no vote that there was a lot of caution about it. But I, I got this feeling that mm. after it went so profoundly no, that there was going to be a bit of political vengeance. And you saw that in that really spooky kind of letter that came out from the, uh, the, mm. the group speaking for yes the other day. The kind of hatred that, that we weren't allowed to see when the debate was on, but we're now seeing about the dislike, the, the sort of detested view they have about people who disagree with them. And I, I sort of think, you know, why you should be worried about this is because the far left really want to put the straps on discussion outside of their acceptable boundaries, their acceptable boundaries. And, uh, you know, there are some spooky people in that parliament and they will see a benefit in shutting down discussion that's free and sometimes challenges all of their assumptions and all of their, their views of the world. I just don't know why this doesn't get much more firepower from the broader media. I mean, you've got in that parliament building of yours, you've got an entire press gallery up there that, that you know, it could almost come under assault from the parliament on the other side of the wall <laughs> because they don't like the sound of what mm. they're reading. Yeah, well, I mean, the answer to that is probably because most of them would be exempt from this legislation, I expect. I mean, I, I think that's probably what you're seeing. And, and it's, it's often the way, you know, I think you often see these big companies pushing hard for regulation uh, because it actually suits them because they may be harder for the smaller guy to get across the line. And that's what would happen here. I mean, I, I think increasingly Australians are turning away from mainstream news. I certainly am. I don't, I don't watch any of it anymore. And, uh, you know, I rely on smaller outlets uh, like this and, uh, you know, like many, many others the news I get on Twitter, all of which would be under challenge uh, from this, uh, you know, from this law if it were to pass. And, you know, forgive me, but I, I tend to take the view that if something's ridiculous and outrageous and completely kooky and whatever, then people generally work it yeah, out. I, I don't think people out. need too much protection from free speech. So, uh, look, this will come back. It'll come back, I think, in a slightly less worse way. But let's just hope that uh, there's enough pushback inside Parliament to knock this one on the head. Um, it can't go through 
and if it does, then it needs to be repealed. And I'm you know, really glad to see that uh, that my side of politics is pushing hard against it, which is great news. Yeah, well, good. I mean, I like seeing a little bit of passion from the Liberal National Party every now and then. Mm. Uh, passion works, and yeah. it works. It certainly works. It works. It, it has results. Um, it's sad for me. I, I've spent my entire life working in mainstream media, and, and I still think I am in the mainstream media. It's sad for me mm. that to hear a political significant figure as you are to sort of say you've lost trust in the whole thing, which is kind of why we need to make sure that organisations like this one stay alive and keep powering on. Uh, great to talk to you, Senator, and, uh, you know, keep doing what you do. It's good to have people who are prepared to stand and fight. Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, yeah well, uh, I'll let you know how it pro progresses. <laughs> good stuff. Senator Alex Antic with us in Canberra. On a fight that needs to be had, two fights, actually, across Australia, The Alan Jones Show. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store, and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself. David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv. G'day, Damien Curry here. Are you having trouble keeping up with the news and the flood of information coming at us all? Want to understand what's going on clearly and simply without any hidden agenda? Well, great news. The Other Side Australia is back every Friday, now right here on ADH TV. It's your weekly short circuit summary of the best news commentary from Australia and abroad. And join me for the Other Side interviews on Tuesday nights and on demand right here on ADH TV. feel like the walls are closing in? We've got wall-to-wall -wall Labor governments across mainland Australia. What can you do about it? Well, you can subscribe to The Spectator Australia right now. Get 10 issues for just $10. We'll keep you sane. We'll keep you right on track. Phone 1-800-809-233. Do it now. Oh, yes. That's more like it. Oh, Albo. Hey, what about this bloke? This is one of the most senior public servants in the country, a man by the name of Jim Betts. He is the Director General of our biggest government department in Canberra, the Federal Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development, Communications and the Arts. Fair bit there. Jim Betts, everything that you need to be to get ahead in the Australian Public Service, the ultimate virtue signaller. Now, here he is at the estimates hearing inside Parliament House yesterday, being questioned by senators. Remember, this 
is the parliament. And there's Betts. Can we stick him back up on the screen again? There he is with the rainbow thing around his neck, with the open neck shirt, talking to a senator, answering questions, sleeves rolled up. It's the whole virtue signal. You know, he's kind of too cool for school. Jim Betts is, I think by his own admission, is a social change advocate. He's essentially a frustrated politician masquerading as a bureaucrat. It's never really about the actual job. It's about, you know, changing the tone of discussion. Self-indulgent identity politics. You know, when Betts was in the New South Wales Public Service, he handed out copies of the discredited Bruce Pascoe Dark Emu book and made all the execs in the public service that worked for him study it. The department used taxpayer funds to set up a yarning circle and offices and relentlessly chit-chats about gender equality and identity and sexuality. And what that had to do with his real job as the then head of the Department of Planning, I will never know. But Jim Betts gets away from it, away with it. And he's still at the moment, you know, making his impact on the public servants, sitting there yesterday in Parliament, everyone else is wearing suit and tie. Not him, no, he's too cool for that. He shows up with his latest little thing. The only thing left off, of course, is the yes badge. I'm sure he would have wore that if it was before the referendum. The lefties love him. In the public service, dim-witted liberals have promoted him. In fact, it was so silly, Dominic Perrottet actually had to get rid of him from the highest office because he rightly said, what's this bloke doing here? And then Labor came to the rescue. They hired him in Canberra and Jim Betts' stocks kept rising. We estimate he earns $879,000 a year to run the department, even though (laughs) he can't be bothered showing the parliament a bit of respect. He shows up casually dressed. And speaking of respect, have a look at this. Have a look at the way he answered questions from elected senators. This is from Senator Bridget McKenzie when she dared to ask him about the mismanagement of badly behaved public servants in his department. Have a listen. Um, Does the phrase hotties list mean anything to you, Mr Betts? You're you're going down this path, aren't you, Senator, which I warned you about. Uh, Yes, it does. Um, So this relates to allegations which were made um, within our graduate program about concerns that some um, female grads had um, that certain male male members of the graduate cohort had um, assembled a list of a degrading list of women which assess them by their so-called hotness, which it's just a disgusting phrase that I hate to have to mention. Jim Betts uh, treats us all to a word salad for a long answer and essentially answers that we'll do something about it. Look, I actually don't particularly care much about that issue. I care about the bloke's attitude to his job and what he does and more to the point what he doesn't do. You see, people like Betts are why not much happens inside the public servants. And as a caller to my radio program years ago said, he's as useless as the G in lasagna. (laughs) It's a great phrase and it sums it up. There is a truly remarkable thing going on at the moment in world sport. And for the first time ever, the nation of Afghanistan has moved into the level of being a respectable force in world cricket. Two weeks ago, they defeated the mighty England by 69 runs at the Cricket World Cup. 
only nine point three overs left. They bowled England for two hundred and fifteen runs, leaving England now at the bottom of the table. That's the ladder. <laughs> well, India at the top, New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia. Pakistan, then Afghanistan. They beat Pakistan last night. Afghanistan beat Pakistan. That was a spirited match. What we are seeing here is truly incredible. When you look at the history of that nation, of how it is right now, run by the Taliban, how these players, most of them, were, I mean, I don't even want to think what they were doing back when Australia, the US and Britain were over there invading Afghanistan. So we have this bizarre situation unfolding where there's the prospect that cricket powerhouses like South Africa and England won't make the semi-finals. Australia may not. Meanwhile, India is keeping the local crowds very happy, yet to be defeated. I want to talk about this because there's a lot of spirit to this contest. And even if you don't like cricket, it's worth considering just where Afghanistan has been and where they are going and why the world is taking notice. Let's talk to Gavin Robertson. Now, Gavin played tests for Australia, 13 one-day internationals, four tests. In 2019, though, which makes this guy incredible, he was given the shock diagnosis after having a checkup of not feeling too well, told he had a form of brain cancer. And five hours later, he was on the table, you can see it there, undergoing surgery. A hell of a battle followed, and he won it. He won the battle. He beat the big C, cancer. Gavin hosts a radio program on 2SM alongside some sporting greats called Talking Sport. Graham Hughes, Brett Papworth, Bill Harrigan, Mark Spud Carroll. And he's the cricket expert there, having played test cricket for Australia. He's on air right now. We spoke to him earlier. Gavin Robertson, g'day. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Jase. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. A nice surprise package, this Afghanistan story. Oh, well, I think it's great not only for... Uh, the game of cricket, but let alone currently the, as you wake up every day and you look at the news and you look what the world can be like. So uh, their efforts and their successes um, lift people. So that's a, that's a great thing. You consider that this is the same team that, what, in January, the world was calling for them to be banned from cricket as a protest to the Taliban for, for not treating women well, and that's a pretty good point to make, uh, you treat women well yes. or, or you're not really a civilised country, and we nearly yep. kicked them out of world cricket, and there they are now in front of England, right on the backside mm. of Australia, and, and almost in the running to go to the next round of the World Cup. Incredible. Yeah, it is, and I think like all countries, or yes, there's in the Middle East has its primary issues that many of us don't understand, let alone agree with, but like all countries, there's bad and good. And I, I, I just see uh, the, the people I've sort of read about with regard to the Af Afghanistan cricket team, you know, they're, they're yearning for a, a good life, they love the sport and trying to move forward, but it's the overhanging cloud or, that sits around that country that sits on top of them also. And that's the, the pressure they've, they've also got to deal with. And you know what I... You know, we go back to, remember South Africa, the boycott in the 70s, and mm. um, it works. And, yes, it's it could be an idea that boycotting, uh, will that turn them around? That's the big question. My guess on that, I'd love your thought, is is no. They, they, they wouldn't care. They, they do their own way of living and we'd never change them. 
Yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because uh, I find it very hard to think that we can force our morality onto a country that at the moment is run by the Taliban. I mean, we are actually quite lucky yeah. in a way that the Taliban lets them compete with the infidels, you know? I mean, that's the farce of, uh, of the situation that is in that country. Uh, tell me, that teams like England and and Australia and, and South Africa that get beaten by these, you know, these sort of Neville nations in cricket, uh, like the Netherlands and Afghanistan. I wonder if a lot of it is psychology. You go there thinking they're easy beats and, and you, you walk onto the field and then something happens and suddenly you've lost it. Well, they, they won't want to admit that, Jase, but you know as well as I do, that is the primary framework of failure and, um, and what they do. You know, to, to be able to see um, South Africa and England, who over the last 12 months theoretically have been great, but all of a sudden drop and, they, you know, they start the competition well, both those teams, and they get, you know, Afghanistan take over and ha get a victory. And, I mean, it, I, you know, there's people in their country going, what happened? But <laughs> it, it is a mentality. You think nine games, you think, oh, I'm going to tick this game, this game, I will do those two easily, we'll win those easily. And that in sport is a waste of a sentence. Anytime you let that enter your mind, you are wasting not only your own time but the, the people and the public uh, of your country that you're representing. Tell me about our country and our team. I don't know how to put this because I, I sort of love these blokes. I love this sport. But I feel like we missed an opportunity to make a few changes and we've stuck with the good old boys and there is just something that's not quite right with this team. That said, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said David Warner shouldn't be there and he hit that remarkable, you know, almost got a double century in a one-day match. The guy is incredible when he wants to be and when he is. D did we miss the opportunity? Uh, in a way. The, the other thing, I've been asked this question in the last three months I've, a, a lot. Um, you know that... Uh, going back to when you and I were growing up, we, you know, how you would you were around and you knew that the Australian player was very much defined by you know Bob Simpson, etc., and and Cricket Australia. But today, the actual players have a huge say in their involvement within Australian cricket. It's almost like theoretically and financially, because all of the, the the money and the coin does sit uh, in India. And the players very much optimise what India think about them and they, they, with their management, debate on where they are. And then they talk to Cricket Australia. So there's those issues that sit in the game today. Mm. But the other thing I've been told only oh, a, a year or so ago by a, a couple of players, they said, Robbo, he, the best example is today. I mean, I understand what you're saying about cricket, but it is a job and a very good paying job. And you know what they're doing? They are searching from that 20 years of age to see how many years, you know, can I get 10, 15, some of them even searching for 20 years. Look at Anderson from England. He's 41. Yeah. But they're still searching for that great money because there's going to come a time when it all stops and you go back to normality and then you've got to try and find, okay, I'm going to be a, an assistant coach on 125000 now instead of my 1.5 million. Mm. So that's why I think the game, you are 100% right. When you look at the ages, we are we own the middle 35, 36, 37-year-olds. We own it. And, um, you know, if I go back, you know, 20 years, you were gone at 33 to 35, you were gone. You were no chance. And there's numerous greats that didn't last. So the game has changed. And as I've been told, 
it's a financial job, Gavin, and we've got to earn the money we can and then move on. Yeah, well, you put it like that, it makes sense. I mean, you, or you end up a, a radio host for a living. <laughs> oh. uh, low blow, low blow. Hey, um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you think uh, Pat Cummins is still should be our captain? Is, is he the right guy for it? Has he got that team unifying? Oh, look, theoretically he is. I mean, he's a quality person. That's the first part of it. Uh, he will take on a lot of responsibility quietly. Um, you know, when, when it's all said, the other thing about it is Patty is probably, to me, in the top three bowlers in the world, but I classify that as test cricket primarily. Yeah. I don't I don't throw Paddy in the top ten one day bowlers or T twenty bowlers. Because there's two different formats. When you're playing T twenty and one day cricket, you've got to be able to own four or five deliveries under pressure and deliver the Yorker when needed. Deliver the middle and off Yorker and the bottom of leg stump or Yorker and reading a batsman. But Pat Cummins is Dennis Lilly style when or Glenn McGrath when you hit short of a length constantly and and Pat Cummins owns short of a length but we've got to remember T20 and ODI cricket the risk factor is not a lot and a batsman's allowed to really go for it but the perfect thing to go after is a short of the length delivery because that's your chance of getting in and under it and hitting your sixes and your fours and that's why if you look at I mean Paddy's numbers for example they're, they're quite high you know, I've seen two, two for 65 off six or seven. You know, these types of things have happened to Paddy and a lot of people have said over the last 30 months, how does Paddy Cummins go for so many runs in these short-form games? It's all due to, A, his perfect short-of-a-length bowling, which at Test Cricket is brilliant, but not for the short game. Ah, oh, that's right, and it's not looking great. Um, more importantly, how are you? Uh, I, I find just I find talking to you and and seeing you and every time I get a buzz about it because I know how close it came for you, for for, for the big C getting you and and made it so lovely to see you ticking along well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, mate. Look, I um, yeah, I you, it's to me. I, I was only asked the other day because a gentleman was asking me about uh, Dr. Charlie Tia who operated on me, but um, and I said, look. I said, you know, I, I focus on alkalinity, I focus on, you know, plant-based diet, et cetera, and, and keeping, you know, health and fitness moving slowly but strongly. Um, but when it's all said and done, I mean, you knew me, you watched me bat, and I'd like to tickle my way to a horrible 88. If, I, I, you know, if I'm sneaking a few through third and second slip <laughs> and a couple all over the gully, and I tinkle my way to a horrible 88, That'd be so amazing. Um, at 57 now, I just search for another year, and that's all you got to do. And I re- really do think the simplest message for anyone wondering if if you're stressed at 55, 60, 65, or 70, and it's all about money and where you're going to go, stop worrying. Live today, live tomorrow, and do your best you can, and keep things moving forward slowly, like your mum and dad and your grandma and your grandma, because we get so stressed by you know social media and the speed of the world today. But a sickness can teach you a lot about what life is and what you're here to do. Gee, you know, and I can see that in you and the way you say it. That's probably one of the most powerful ways we, to, to end this, this chat and to probably end this show. Uh, good on you, Gav. Lovely to talk to you and, and great to see you at, at full strength. And I love listening to you on the radio. I love your passion for the sport that you love in all sports, but I love your passion for life. Uh, good on you. Thank you, mate. And, uh, yep, just... 
ticking along. Hopefully, uh, even tomorrow, I sneak one through third slip. It's great not, to talk to you, mate. You take great not care, Jase. Not out. Yeah, not out. Spot on. <laughs> Good on you, Gav. See you later. See you, mate. Take care. Gavin Robertson, uh, Australian Test cricketer, who, uh, I mean, what do you say? That is a great message on the Alan Jones program across Australia. Well, as we leave you today, a great moment that happened inside the very famous Lifeguards Tower at Bondi Beach. If you've ever watched the Channel 10 TV show Bondi Rescue, you, you may well have actually seen some of this unfold in the news. This is news coverage of the day that one of the boys ran up the road to help save the life of a tiny little boy. Now, this is not inside the TV show. The, the cameras weren't there for that. This vision you're seeing was filmed by a man and the whole thing unfolded and it's been published on the Daily Mail and we, we appreciate them letting us borrow this for the moment. The lifesaver we're talking about here in blue there was first to the scene. That's lifesaver Anthony Carroll. In the TV show, he's known as Harry's. So he heard the little kid's dad screaming for help and he jumped, grabbed the gear and ran over and called the Ambos on the radio system for backup. The baby was eight weeks old and had been dropped by accident onto the concrete. He was unconscious, no signs of life, no breathing. And then suddenly, suddenly, the baby starts crying. He's alive, hurt, but breathing. Which brings us to today. Today, the baby's parents showed up at the tower in Bondi with their now little boy to thank Harry's. A truly great moment. Have a look. Right. This little man, Magnus, I resuscitated and brought back to life, and this is pretty much the greatest day of my lifeguarding career, to have him in the lifeguard tower with me. Hello. Yeah. How are you? Look how beautiful you are. <laughs> Mum and Dad. Yeah. Um, this is my dream to do this for you guys. Yes. Um, it's, the, it's the best thing I've ever done in my career, so I'm stoked, Thank you. and we love you. Yeah. Thank you. Love, to share love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what a lovely, genuine bloke and, and a lifesaver. That is fantastic. That's our show. Thank you for your company. I'm here for Alan Jones. He'll be back with you in a couple of weeks' time. Stick around. We have Save the Nation with David Flint up next on ADH. And you can catch this show as a podcast in the morning. Thank you for your company. Jason Morrison's my name. See you tomorrow. <laughs>